Lord, we are your sheep, and we love to hear your voice. We need to hear your voice, Lord. Uh, without you, we are lost, we go astray. Please speak to us now through your word. Open our eyes, convict our hearts. We want to be like you, Lord. We want to understand, we want to admire people that are truly worthy of our admiration, people who are like your son. In hearing your words now, help us become like him. Amen. You may be seated, and you can go ahead and open your Bible to Titus chapter 1. Um, last time I was up here, about a month ago, we began looking at the elder qualifications in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. We were only able to get through the first two verses last time, and this time we're going to finish off the section doing verses 7, 8, and 9. Um, again, we'll only cover those last three verses today, but to give us context of the whole list, let's go ahead and read Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Amen. Um, as we talked about before, Paul here, he is sending Titus out to set up churches throughout the island of Crete. And uh, as he does so, Paul says, tells Titus, these are the, the qualities you ought to look for in a potential elder, someone who's going to lead the church, who's going to steward God's church. And um, the application of this passage, it's quite obvious for anybody who wants to be an elder uh, it'd be quite obvious, too, for someone who was involved with appointing elders in their church. Uh, but we asked the question last time, how, though, is this applicable, relevant for the average Christian who is not picking their elders, um, who is uh, not trying to become an elder themselves? And the way we thought about it is that every single person has leaders in their life. And a lot of these you don't choose. Uh, you know, your parents... Uh, your boss, even your leaders at church, you might not have had a lot of input in those people being the, the people in charge of you. Yet amongst that group, or even people outside of that group, there are people that you choose to admire, that you aspire to be like. Um, indeed, these people are the ones that provide for you instruction. That is, they teach you, they tell you about life, the world. They provide you direction. It might be in the form of specific advice or specific application of how to live your life. And then finally, they provide a demonstration. They provide an example of what the good life, in their opinion, looks like. And so that's what, again, we will keep in mind as we look at the rest of these qualifications, is this is God's standard of leadership. When we are going to pick someone to admire, pick someone to aspire to be like, are we going to use our own worldly, superficial standard, or are we going to instead be humble and ask, God, what should I look for in a leader? What does God say makes a godly, righteous leader someone that is indeed 
worthy of admiration. Um, in reference to that, uh, I thought of one of my favorite articles uh, by the theologian Carl Truman. He wrote it back in 2018 in uh, preparation of that year's Academy Awards, the Oscars. Uh, so he wrote a little article entitled, My Protestant Oscar Predictions. Uh, his first two predictions are jokes. You can look it up later. It's kind of funny. And then his third one, though, is really the substance of his article. And he makes a great point, and I'm going to go ahead and read to you directly from it now. Uh, he said, that brings me to my third prediction. We will once again witness the triumph of aesthetics over ethics. Of course, aesthetics is the study of what is beautiful. Ethics, the study of what is right. He said, we're going to witness the triumph of aesthetics over ethics, or rather, that identification of aesthetics with ethics, which is now the default position of Western society. Think about it. The red carpet will provide us with a parade of beautiful people. That's one way of looking at it. Here's another. It will provide us with an endless stream of people who have cheated on spouses, betrayed friends, broken marriage vows, wrecked homes, had abortions. Those who have been exposed as sexual abusers may be less in evidence this year, but other than that, the usual carnival of corruption will be on full display, and it will be attractive because it is physically beautiful. In America, for many generations now, beauty has covered a multitude of sins, or perhaps it is more accurate to say that beauty has turned a multitude of sins into an aspirational lifestyle. He goes on in the article to say, in contrast to this artificial superficial beauty, which most people look to and prize represented in Hollywood, he gives an example of that which is truly beautiful. A husband who takes care of his wife of 50 years, who is slowly losing her personality through Alzheimer's. That is truly beautiful. These people, these selfish, wicked, uh, destructive people, though they might look good on the outside, they're not really worthy of our admiration. They're not worthy to aspire to be like they are miserable people in their heart. And their destiny is indeed eternal misery. Yet we are people who look on the outside. We don't look on the heart as God does. And so we look at these physically beautiful people, whether, whether, whether they're in Hollywood, they're on Instagram, in the business magazine, we see the people who are successful in the world and we make those our heroes. Those are the people we look to of what the good life is and how to live it. Instead of doing that, though, we ought to look at God's description of what makes a person qualified to lead, what makes someone truly admirable, truly worthy of aspiring to be like. And that's what we have. Again, we look here right at verse 7. We looked at verses 5 and 6, and 7 picks up by Paul saying, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Paul had said earlier up in, uh, in verse 6, that was the first qualification that the elder be above reproach. Paul reiterates it here. He uses actually a slightly different word, but the point's the same. Most basically, if someone is going to take care of God's church on God's behalf, he needs to be blameless. He needs to be righteous and admirable in his conduct. Uh, from that then, Paul gets into a series, you can see in verse 7, of five things that God's leader, an elder, ought not to be. Five negative qualifications. And the way that I've kind of thought about this list of five things that an elder is not to be, uh, I kind of saw them as, uh, what held them all together, is that they are all resistance to the temptations of leadership. Someone who's going to be an elder, he needs to be able to resist 
the unique temptations of leadership. Uh, There's some people who might be able to live just fine and seem like their life's all together and they're wholesome when they have few responsibilities and few anxieties. But should you give them the power, the opportunity to act out their lusts and desires, uh, if they are faced with pressure, anxiety, their uh, facade of integrity will, will crumble. An elder in God's church needs to have such integrity that when he is put in a position of power, authority, when he's faced with many anxieties and responsibilities, his integrity withstands. Uh, I'm sorry if this is too soon, but there are some materials that can stand up just fine under uh, 10 feet of water that don't stand up under 1,000 feet of water. The people that we are going to look to, that people that we ought to admire, are people who need to be able to withstand the pressures of leadership. And the first one you can see right there is that the elder must not be arrogant. Uh, And that's quite obvious. If someone's good at something, if they've risen to a position of leadership, if they have the opportunity to make decisions for other people, if others respect them, of course, it's very natural that that person might become arrogant. By arrogant, I mean that person might begin to think that he is more important, that he is more skilled than everybody else. And such a person, though, is forbidden from having the role of an elder in Christ's church, Christ who did not come to be served, but to serve. The arrogant man does the opposite. He's an antichrist. He exists not to serve, but to be served. He thinks that everyone at his church is for him. They're there so that he can preach, so that he can be praised, he can have power, he can have prestige, and he can get a paycheck. Someone could uh, end up in this role being arrogant, I think, through one of two ways. You guys all know the saying that power corrupts. The flip side of it is that power also attracts the corrupted. There are some people that end up in leadership uh, and they're arrogant there specifically because they were arrogant and that's why they entered leadership in the first place. They thought that they were better and more important than everyone else and so they thought, hey, I should be the guy up there. Uh, Everyone would like what I have to say. I'd really enjoy telling people what to do. You have those kinds of people who enter with corrupted, corrupted motives. On the other hand, you have plenty of people who enter ministry into a role of spiritual leadership, and they probably did it for mostly good reasons. They thought how they wanted to win other people to Christ, uh, advance God's kingdom, be a blessing to others. But within their, that exposure to authority, their exposure to human praise, admiration, their exposure to people sitting there for 45 minutes every week, listening to them blabber on and on, they begin to think, yeah, I am pretty special. I am quite important. I think I am a bit better than everyone else. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a medieval theologian whom uh, the reformers really respected, he once said this about the Pope, and it's very relevant to us Protestants. He said, the most grievous danger for any Pope lies in the fact that encompassed as he is by flatterers, he never hears the truth about his own person and ends by not wishing to hear it. It's a great Temptation, it's a great trial being in leadership, being exposed to the praise of men. One cannot listen to one's own PR in the sense we must all tune out the praise and remember that we are small, helpless, sinful worms. Because the thing is, even if the leader, even if the elder, the pastor is smarter, is more interesting, better looking, uh, better than everyone else, he's still just a man. He's still just a human finite, mortal man. Um, A 
few days ago, I was up at the Connex, the storage bin in the parking lot, and I was uh, op opening the lock to get inside, and I noticed that there was a, a lizard who had kind of climbed in the back, and I thought, hey, that's a pretty good place to hide. There was basically one way in, one way out. Uh, it was shaded from the heat, and his eye could look out perfectly. And you can get a window into the, the deep thoughts that enter my head. Uh, I thought, I wonder what the smartest lizard in the whole world is. <laughs> Uh, and not like the species, don't come up to me after and say this species is the smartest. No, I meant like amongst the species of lizards, the ones that they all look the same to us, which one was the smartest in history? And what did that smartest lizard accomplish? You know, did he uh, live a week longer than someone else? Did he have a few more descendants than someone else? I don't know. Uh, of course, the other question is, is there actually any discernible difference in intelligence between lizards or is it so negligible, minute, that no one could even uh, determine if there is a difference? And I thought, hey, maybe that's what the angels say about us. Is there actually any difference in intelligence between them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's slight, but uh, yeah, it's hard to notice. And what's the difference? Uh, I guess if they're smarter, they might live a couple years longer. They have a bigger house. I don't know. Yeah, there's really no difference. That's the thing. You could be the smartest, the greatest lizard in history. Who cares? You were a lizard. Uh, <laughs> really, you, you can be the smartest, greatest man in history, and who cares? You're a man. Even if you know more than everyone else in history, the amount of knowledge you have is so small compared to all the knowledge that is available. You never have the right to think that you're more important, you're more significant, that you don't need anybody's input. You're just a finite man at best. That's uh, the, the qualification there, not to be arrogant. The next one there you see in the ESV is not to be quick-tempered. It's inevitable as a leader that the people under you are going to make mistakes. You're going to give what you think to be very specific directions about how to do a task. And inevitably, people are going to drop the ball. They're forgetting what you said. Uh, they're going to have heard what you said, but then while they were doing it, they thought, I actually should do it a different way. And the temptation as a leader is when someone does that to lash out, to quickly be angry with that person, to be impatient with them, to insult them, to humiliate them. God's leader, however, cannot do so. He needs to be patient like God, God who is consistently described as being slow to anger. Indeed, to be blessed by God's patience and grace with you, and then for you to turn around and lash out on somebody when they make a mistake, it's a bit like the unforgiving servant, isn't it, who's forgiven millions of dollars and yet went home and would not uh, forgive his servant a thousand dollars. If God has been so patient with us, if he is a overlooked so many of our faults, can't we not do the same with the people that serve us? As 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and the key, be patient with them all. Uh, in our society, sometimes people punish, they express their temper by yelling, publicly, publicly humiliating someone, Often, though, that's not the case, especially, I think, here in Hawaii with the aloha spirit. A lot of times the way we express our anger is by being passive-aggressive, by ignoring someone, by giving them the cold shoulder, by never giving them an opportunity to do anything again, by talking about them behind their backs, by making backhanded comments. Those things we might think are not as bad as yelling at somebody, but they are equally unfit of a leader in God's church. Next, we move on to the, the qualification there that the elder, the would-be elder, must not be a drunkard. And now, I, I, you know, if you think about it for a second, what if uh, Paul had not included this specific 
qualification that he not be a drunkard. Uh, I doubt that Titus, without that, would have been tempted, you know, to go to the town drunk and wake him up at 10 in the morning, surrounded by his empty vases, and say, hey, dude, you're our leader now. Wake up. We got to go. He probably also wouldn't have been tempted to find the party animal who goes to the raves every Friday night. Uh, Those people would obviously not be good leaders. I think the real... uh, profound, significant application of this, this disqualification that the elder not be a drunkard is it disqualifies the high-functioning alcoholic. That is the person who deals very nicely with a lot of responsibility, who is a leader in their life, who deals with a lot of anxiety, but only does it through his reliance on alcohol. Sadly, I know of... Uh, quite a number of leaders in the church who everyone thought, man, what an example of leadership in the home, in the church, in their career. And yet, in reality, behind closed doors, no one knew the reason they were able to handle all that anxiety at a supernatural level, because they were always relying on some some substance. At night, when they were faced with guilt or anxiety about their life, and they couldn't sleep, They turned to their ever-reliable friend, the most used and widely used sleep aid in the history of the world. They turned to alcohol, who of course requires no change of character, no assessment of one's life, no reformation of habits. It even tastes good. Uh, A sad example of this is actually Martin Luther King Jr., who of course was a phenomenal leader and through an unbelievable amount of difficulties and obstacles, accomplished something incredibly significant for the American people. Uh, He was truly a great leader. He, however, though, was only able to deal with all that anxiety, all those troubles and tribulations um, by some terrible vices. He was basically a uh, compulsive serial philanderer and alcoholic. He felt very guilty about uh, sleeping with a different person almost every night. Um, And you can only imagine that that guilt led to him drinking even more and more. That philandering and the drinking, it went hand in hand. He himself ended up saying later, uh, the reason I do all that, the reason I sleep with all those women, I get drunk all the time, even though he knew that the the FBI was tracking his every move and knew every time he did that, he said he had to do it because it was the way he dealt with his anxiety. He called it anxiety reduction. Of course, many people can accomplish the same thing uh, through something similar to alcohol. It might be reliance on painkillers, sleep aids, amphetamines. And I do want to take a moment to address anybody in here who does that, who seems to be uh, managing their life well but is only able to do it by a reliance on alcohol or some other kind of substance. We are mortal and finite men. We can only handle so much pressure, so much responsibility. And that which we are able to handle, we can only do by reliance on God's strength, by reliance that he is the one who ultimately is keeping the world spinning. And if you uh, forsake him, you do not trust in him to deal with your anxiety. Instead, you turn to alcohol, drugs. It's not okay. And you need to repent. You need to tell somebody what you're doing there. There is no positive way such... Abuse ends without repenting, without telling other people what you are doing, without seeking help. The Lord is gracious. Now is the time to begin to learn how to deal with your anxiety 
through the Lord, the means that he has provided, and not selfish, evil ways. After being, not being a drunkard, uh, it's said here in verse 7 that the elder is not to be violent. Uh, that doesn't merely refer to physical violence. It would also refer to a pugnacious attitude, being belligerent, being intimidating, threatening. Of course, this is a common temptation for leaders. People don't do what you want. You're frustrated. They're not performing at the level they ought to be. And so you resort to bullying, to yelling at them, humiliating them, threatening them. And listen, in the workplace, in the business world, you might have got results from that. You might have got your sales team to do better uh, by constantly berating them. But such a method of leadership that has no place in the home and it has no place in the church. Rather, the model for both the home and the church, and indeed for business too, is our Savior, Christ, who is not harsh with us, is not belligerent or pugnacious with us. What's he? He's gentle, he's meek. Gentleness and meekness mean that he has power, he has authority, but he restrains it out of kindness to us. When we sin, he'd had every right, wouldn't he, to humiliate us, to take away every good thing in our life? We'd get the message quickly that way, wouldn't we? But that's not how Christ teaches us. He's very patient with us. He's very gentle to us. He seems to give us the, the exact minimum amount of sorrow, pain, discomfort that we need to repent. So we ought to be the same with the people under us. Just because you have the right to criticize them, just because you have the right to call them out in front of everybody, just because that's even in your job description, does not mean that you ought to do it that way. You need to be gentle like the Lord is gentle to you. Uh, the final uh, qual- disqualification, really, here in this uh, list of five, talking about resistance to the temptations of leadership, is that the leader must not be greedy for gain. Um, I know it's going to be quite a surprise to you, but there are some people through history who went into religious authority seeking money. I know it's hard to believe, uh, but it happens. No, indeed, it happens all the time. And that's why this is actually the most common New Testament warning for pastors. That they not go into the ministry, they do not conduct themselves for the sake of money. A qualified man, though he will indeed need to be paid so that he can live, so that he can focus his energy and his time on serving the people of the church, he is paid so that he can pastor. He's not pastored so that he can be paid. All right, with that, those are the five disqualifications Um, resistant to the temptations of leadership. That was point one. Now from that, Paul then turns to six positive qualities of the elder. Um, These are really just, I think, basics of what make a good Christian leader. I called it, point number two, pillars of Christian virtue. The first is this, that the elder uh, must be hospitable. Hospitality uh, was one of the preeminent virtues in the ancient world all over. And the reason for that was because there were no uh, modern hotel chains and there were no banking systems. So if you were a foreigner sojourning in a uh, town far away from home, you'd have a bit of trouble. One, there would be no guarantee that you would have a safe and clean bed to sleep in. These places, uh, these inns could fill up quite quickly. You might not have a place to go. And even if you did find an inn that was safe, that was clean, that had an open bed, It would be a bit hard paying the the innkeeper. You'd have basically two less than ideal options. 
You could bring a bunch of money with you, but then risk having that money stolen from you. Or you could go and try and get the room on credit, telling the, uh, the innkeeper that you would pay him later. That's what the Good Samaritan does, right? In that parable, he says, take care of this man, I'll pay you later. But, you know, there's a downfall to that too. The innkeeper might not trust you. He might say, that's not good enough for me. I want cold, hard cash. Therefore, the sojourner, the foreigner, was incredibly vulnerable and dependent on the goodness and kindness of strangers in that city, or at best, distant relations, distant acquaintances. He relied on these people to take him into his home, to care for him, uh, despite him likely not having money to pay for them. And so this, because the sojourner, the foreigner, who you know, just about everybody was at some point, was so vulnerable, was so dependent, hospitality, therefore, was so necessary and was valued so highly. And not only was it valued so highly uh, because it was necessary, it was also valued so highly because you had to take on a, a decent amount of risk to be hospitable to somebody. You know, you can think of in Les Miserables, the bishop who is kind and hospitable to Jean Valjean. He doesn't have a place to sleep at night. He brings him into his house. But then Jean Valjean, he steals the silver. Anybody who was hospitable back then would have been exposed to the same danger. This was a stranger indeed. How could you trust them to let them into your house with your possessions and your children? Yet, nevertheless, uh, leaders, pretty much everybody back then was expected to be hospitable. Of course, that doesn't apply really directly to our society where there are Marriott's, uh, there, are, there is online banking. People don't have the problems they once did. People aren't quite as vulnerable when they travel. How then uh, would, should we think about this quality of hospitality in our day? Well, really, I think the heart of hospitality is that you love the weak. You love the vulnerable. You see someone who's in need and you take the risk upon yourself to care for them and meet their need. And indeed, that is what is required of a Christian leader, an elder in our day, that they care for the weak, that they love the weak. Think of Romans 12, 16. Do not be proud, but associate with the lowly. The godly man who is like Christ, when he sees a need, when he sees someone who is lost, he wants to help them. He wants to care for them. If a Christian leader only ever has time uh, for the rich people, for his friends, for the other skilled and qualified leaders, it's really not someone to be admired. Uh, that's really not someone that ought to be admired. We ought to look for the people who care for the weak, who love the vulnerable. Next, we see that the elder, he ought to be a lover of good. It's a rather straightforward qualification. It means that he loves what's good in the world. That's his priority. He wants to benefit his fellow men. He wants to glorify God. He wants what is good and beneficial for all men. As Gerald Bray, one commentator, put it, uh, this quality is especially valuable because if your people, if the people who follow a leader know that what you care about above all is the good, that you do this to serve other people, to benefit other people, when you inevitably make mistakes, people are going to be forgiving because they're going to know in their heart he tried to do what is good. I know he cares. I know he wants to help other people. He merely made a poor decision in this case. If, on the other hand, someone is known to not care about the good, if people distrust him, if they think he's in it for his own sake, well, your leadership is a bit doomed at that point. 
Uh, next we have here that the elder ought to be self-controlled. There's actually two words here in this list that can be translated self-controlled. The other one there is disciplined. So two words that could basically rightly uh, be translated the same way as self-controlled. How then should we think about them? Well, basically, we should look to see how these words are different from each other. Indeed, Paul wasn't being redundant. He didn't say the same thing twice. So when he uses these two words that are slightly different than each other, we ought to put the emphasis on what's distinct about the two words, okay? And so this first one, self-controlled, here translated by the ESV, uh, the emphasis is on someone whose actions are governed by prudence, by wisdom. That is, it's not an impulsive person. When a situation arises, he doesn't just go by his gut and do what feels best. Instead, when a situation arises, he stops. He considers the details. He tries to determine what details he doesn't know. What he doesn't know, he tries to understand and find out a bit more. He goes and talks to wise counselors. And of course, above all, he thinks, what would Scripture say about this? And he asks the Lord to give him wisdom to make the best decision. And then based on all that, he figures out, I think this is the best course of action, and that's how he acts. That's what the elder ought to be, someone who is prudent, someone whose actions are governed not by their gut and their passions, but by wisdom, by prudence, by thoughtful decision-making. Uh, one way that you can tell that somebody lacks this type of prudence, wisdom, is that they're constantly making new decisions. Uh, they constantly have a new career, a new ministry, a new girlfriend, a new initiative. And by that, they display to everybody that their decisions are not based on wisdom. Instead, they live by their gut. They live by their feelings. And as such, feelings change all, their time, all the time. So decisions change all the time. Of course, even if you make the decision by wisdom, by prudence, sometimes you'll get new details, sometimes things will change, and you'll have to go in a new direction. But a good way to look to see if someone is prudent is do they have consistency in their life, or are they always thinking of some new way to go? Uh, there was someone I knew, unfortunately, who uh, displayed this kind of impulsive decision-making. I knew him first in high school, and in high school he said he wanted to be a pastor, so for college, he went and he uh, went to a Bible college to study be, to become a pastor. And right before he graduated, he figured out, no, I don't want to be a pastor. Actually, I want to be an academic, a professor. So then he switched courses. He went to uh, another school to get a degree to become an academic. And right before he graduated, he said, no, actually, I don't want to be an academic. Uh, I'm going to move back home, and I think I'll go into finance. He got a job in finance. Uh, he met a girl and started dating her. She was studying for the bar exam, so he thought, hey, that sounds interesting. I should try that out. Uh, he studies for the bar exam, takes it, does quite well, uh, breaks up with the girl, and uh, he gets accepted to a school on the East Coast. So then he moves out to the East Coast for law school, and once he gets out there, he thinks, ah, actually, law school's not for me. I'm going to go back into business. Um, this all happened years ago. I don't know what's happened to him since. He's probably in the Peace Corps or something. Again, though, an example. Uh, if you are ruled by what you feel, uh, your gut, you're going to constantly be going in new directions. We ought all instead to be guided by wisdom, by prudence, thoughtful decision-making. And when we do that, there'll be a good degree of consistency in our lives. Uh, next, we move on to the quality there that's translated in the ESV as upright. Uh, that word there, translated upright, it's a pretty standard word in the New Testament. It's the word for righteous, the word for just. 
And indeed, that's the way I take it, uh, specifically, that the elder needs to be just in his decision-making. That is, he makes fair decisions. He does what is equitable. He rewards the good. He punishes the bad. Often, in Christian circles, the way that justice is neglected, perverted, uh, is by somebody doing something in the name of grace or mercy. Uh, This was uh, on display about a week or two ago when uh, one of the hosts of The View uh, praised Joe Biden for bringing Hunter, to the, uh, Hunter Biden, his son, to the party right like the day after he was federally indicted for a number of crimes. Uh, she said, oh, what a wonderful example of a father's love for his son. He overlooked his faults. He didn't punish him as he ought to have. Instead, he was gracious and kind to him. Yeah, indeed, one person's uh, grace and mercy is another person's injustice. See, the same thing happens in the church all the time, doesn't it? Uh, this person though they are really a terrible leader, though they often sin against the people that serve with them, though they always drop the ball, though they're always an inconvenience to everybody who has to work with them, they keep their position. Why? Ah, Because it's a close relation of the leader, of the pastor. It's a son, it's a donor, it's a longtime friend. So he says, hey, why why don't we all be gracious to this person? Why don't we all be merciful? And of course, you know, who doesn't love grace and mercy? The thing, though, about grace and mercy is that you uh, bear the consequences yourself for someone else's sin. God being merciful to us isn't saying, hey, I'm going to forgive your sin by having Joe suffer in your place. No, it's God himself suffers in our place. That's how he's gracious and merciful, is he bears the consequences instead of us. It's not grace and mercy to make an innocent person bear the punishment for someone else. No, that's injustice. And so that's the same thing in the church world. Uh, you know, if there's someone who's terrible in their position of leadership, for the, the pastor, the elder, to say we're going to all be merciful to him and we're going to tolerate him, really what he's doing is asking everyone else to continue to put up with that person's faults. And then, of course, at the end of the day, still produce the same product. It doesn't affect them, it just affects everyone around them. Again, that is not fair, that's not just, that's partial, that's... Uh, choosing people that you're close to, to reward. Instead, the elder ought to be just. He needs to reward the good and punish the bad, even when he cares about those bad people. Uh, Next, we have the word holy. Holiness. um, Holiness is what creatures apprehend about God when we see him. When a human sees God, whether in some vision or through Scripture apprehends his character, the appropriate reaction is to say that this God is different than me. He is different than everything I've ever known. He is set apart. He is holy. There is no one like him. That's what it means for God to be holy. What then does it mean for a human to be holy? Well, basically it means for a human to be holy is that a person is like God. And they're like God and that their mind, their will, their decision-making has been conformed to God's mind. A holy person isn't somebody who God has taken, you know, some kind of magic of holiness and put it on them so that when they pray they sound like they're a Victorian. No, holiness is somebody who's like God, whose mind has been transformed by God's word. And in their conduct, they indeed represent God to those around them, such that ultimately, People should look at them and say, this person is indeed different. They are set apart from the rest of us. And of course, it's absolutely necessary 
that one of God's leaders, his steward, ought to be holy. If he's not holy, if he does not represent God, if he's not godly, well, the church is going to be profaned and blasphemed. God is going to be profaned and blasphemed. The person who leads Christ's church ought to be like Christ. Uh, the last of these positive qualities is that the elder ought to be disciplined. As I said before, this is the other word that could be translated self-controlled. What, however, is distinct about this word is the, the emphasis falls on a person restraining their fleshly urges and impulses. Uh, this was actually the, basically the highest virtue in Stoicism and for Socrates, the ability to subject one's lower passions and desires and urges to the ideal, to not be um, brought about this way and that by your emotions. And uh, while it was the highest virtue in Stoicism and for Socrates, this is actually the only time that it's mentioned in the New Testament, which I think tells us something interesting. While this type of self-control, discipline, is indeed important for Christians, it's not the highest virtue, for we're a bit distinct from Stoicism. Our highest virtue is love. Nevertheless, this type of self-control is still necessary and while uh, this word could be used to refer to the restraint of all kinds of fleshly urges and impulses, the desire for food, uh, the desire to defend oneself, it was used most often to that strongest and most dangerous of fleshly impulses, sexuality. Uh, Socrates, he, once said, he said one time that indeed a man is able to exercise self-control over everything about his person except his sexuality. So indeed, as Paul says this here, disciplined, uh, it would have the connotation that the elder is disciplined, self-control when it comes to his sexual purity. Which brings up another interesting point then, that Paul opened these list of qualifications by saying that the elder is above reproach. That was the general quality. And the next thing he said is that he was the husband of a one wife, which we said was a positive dedication and faithfulness by the husband to his wife. And then the list, in a sense, ends here by another aspect of purity in a romantic life. That he is self-controlled, he is disciplined when it comes to his desires. With that then, we turn to verse 9. So uh, the first list, verse 7, we call that resistance to the temptations of leadership. Uh, and then the next section, we call those pillars of Christian virtue. And then finally, point 3. Verse 9, these are qualifications for teaching. Christianity is a religion dependent on a book and the ideas of that book. And so therefore, Christian leaders must be skilled in their teaching of that book. And you can note there in verse 9 that the first quality that Paul notes is that the elder has to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That is, there is a deposit of orthodoxy. There is a deposit of sound doctrine which is passed on through at this point in the decades but ultimately through the centuries and through the millennia and the faithful qualified pastor is the one who takes that deposit of truth of sound doctrine of orthodoxy and embraces it holds fast to it loves it the qualified pastor is someone who loves who cares for the things that have been taught for thousands of years in the church. He's not passionate about a new innovation, a new insight, a new way of doing Christianity, a new way of uh, 
connecting with God. He loves that which has been passed on down from the apostles, down from Christ himself. And you can note that this first qualification about teaching, it's actually a moral thing, right? It's that the elder in his heart, he believes. He submits to God's word. He is indeed humble in his reception of orthodoxy. He doesn't think that he's the first person who ever had any insight about the Bible. No, he receives and loves and submits and believes those doctrines that have been passed on to him from Scripture through the apostles, through the church fathers, all the way to the present day. And the, the output of such a person loving and holding on and believing orthodoxy is that he is then able to instruct others in sound doctrine. And that would require, of course, that not only does he love and believe sound doctrine, but he has a depth of insight about sound doctrine. He has a depth of insight about orthodoxy. For him to be able to teach it effectively to others, he needs to understand it himself. Uh, and then on the flip side, he has to be able to understand it. He has to be able then to take that understanding and articulate it to his congregation, to his people, but then finally, he has to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. The qualified teacher is not only learned, he's not only able to communicate, he also has a backbone. He has conviction. It's not every time, whenever, when someone uh, gives some kind of opposition, he doesn't say, oh, I don't know, kind of wilt, I don't know, we'll think about it, maybe there's a way we can agree. A qualified elder is going to be able to stand up for the truth. They're willing to be an enemy sometime, to be the bad guy sometimes, to say, yeah, I know this person seems really nice and he tells great stories, but listen, he's telling lies. That's not the truth. He's made up this new uh, approach to Christianity. That's not what Scripture says. This isn't what we've been taught. This is a perversion. This is false, and he needs to be ignored. Indeed, as Paul will say later, he needs to be silenced. That's what makes up a qualified teacher. What's not said that he's relatable, that he's funny, that he's alliterative, that he's a great rhetorician, that he tells good stories, that he cries every time he talks. That's not what Paul cares about. As you are evaluating people to listen to, teachers to listen to, ask yourself these questions. Is he committed to orthodoxy? Does his depth of knowledge of orthodoxy display itself in his teaching? Does he know what he's talking about? Or does he just basically repeat the notes from the study Bible? And then finally, does he have a backbone? Is he always just being everybody's friend? Is he willing to contradict that what is false? Is he able to even notice what's false such that he's able to call it out and say why it is wrong? That's what we need to look for in a teacher. That's what qualifies somebody to teach in God's church. Uh, in conclusion, I'd, I'd like to make one note. You know, we've looked at all these qualities, and it's a high standard. Uh, it's convicting. Something, of course, we should all aspire to be like, to represent in our own lives. Um, but I do want to note, too, that every single leader in the church, even the very most godly leader, still has their flaws, still has their sins, still has their vices. And a lot of times we say that and we think of it, you know, as just like a hypothetical. Yeah, you're right, he probably gives too much to charity and uh, spends too much time playing with his kids. And, you know, sometimes he gives his kid too much ice cream or something. Yeah, he probably has some kind of fault. But I don't, that's not what I mean. I mean every single leader, even the ones you admire the most and indeed the people who ought to be admired, respected, replicated, they have actual faults. 
actual faults that harm the people in their life, that offend the people in their life, and that ultimately hinder their ministry. Every single person. And it wouldn't be hard to figure it out. All it would take is spending some time with them, and you would realize that this person is not perfect. Indeed, their life cannot perfectly match what they teach. What would be some application of that? Well, first of all, be encouraged. We all have flaws. We all have sins. And, uh, you know, don't think that you're uh, some awful creature because you don't uh, represent all of these things perfectly. We all struggle, and the Lord knows we are dust, and he's kind to us, and he's patient with us. And indeed, the best you're ever going to be is a sinful, fallible man. Second, uh, be gracious. When at some point you figure out that you know, your elders are not perfect, don't be harsh. Don't be mean. Everybody has their flaws. Of course, we, you have to be just. You have to be prudent. Indeed, listen to these. Don't follow people who don't meet these qualifications, but also realize that the standard is not perfection. Everyone has their flaws. Be gracious and kind in your judgment of leaders. And most of all, lastly, be thankful for Christ. It's painful when we find out that our leaders, our heroes, have their faults. The blessing of it, though, is that it makes us rely on Christ more and more, who no matter how much we study him, no matter how much we know him, we never find a fault. We never find anything wrong with him. We never find anything impure. He is truly the perfect man. He is the only one that is worthy of complete imitation and complete admiration. Let us pray that we would indeed be like our Lord and we would trust him more and more this week. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the words that you gave Paul to write to Titus. Pray, Lord, that we would come to represent these qualities on our own life. I pray specifically that the people that we look up to would be people who exemplify these qualities, Lord. We wouldn't be superficial. We wouldn't look at the surface. We wouldn't look at people the way the world looks at people. No, rather, we would take these qualities that you have given us and we would search for leaders who exemplify these and we would follow them. Lord, above all, we are thankful for your son who perfectly exemplified these and every other virtue, every other good quality. Help us know him, love him, and be like him more this week. Amen.